Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Once you have them, apparently everyone's prepared, so go nuts. And again, welcome to Van City Church. Uh, like Tab said, we've been making our way slowly but surely through a book called The Gospel of Matthew. This book is actually, uh, I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard me say it by now, uh, less of a gospel of Matthew in the formal sense and more of a biography of none other than one of history's most notorious stirrers of controversy, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And something you'll pick up on pretty quickly, I hope, if you spend any amount of time at Van City, is that we're really into this character called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so we've been taking this in-depth look at this biography written by a gentleman named Matthew. We've been looking at the stories and the symbolism and the subtext and the context and the culture, the implications both then and now. In fact, I checked on our website as I was writing this, and this, I believe, marks the 35th teaching in the series we're on chapter 9 now, so we're making, we're making it, man. And the reason that we're going so hard on Matthew is that uh, if one bases their entire life around the idea of apprenticing a master, then it's probably a good idea to attempt to understand that master really well. So where we're at in the story, Matthew has followed Jesus' great manifesto for what it means to live as his apprentice, which is the Sermon on the Mount. He follows that with a series of stories about incredible miracles. Jesus has, in Matthew's gospel, taught as one with authority, and now he goes about actually exercising the authority with which he taught. All of this as a portrait of what it looks like when Jesus is king. Outsiders become insiders, insiders become outsiders, uh, the sick are healed, demons are cast out, evil flees before Jesus with just a word. And then in chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, this literary genius of an author has five more miracles to chronicle, each of them loaded to the brim with powerful subtext and incredible implications beyond the already incredible surface level reading. So the first three miracles documented in chapter 9 each feature a religious controversy. So let's read Matthew chapter 9, beginning with the very first verse. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, this is the first of three controversy miracles, and it deals with a religious group of uh, the equivalent of Bible scholars, and they're called teachers of the law. And as Matthew continues to depict Jesus as a divisive figure, he dials up the heat by depicting Jesus as not only a rabbi who taught and who healed, but now as a rabbi who argued. And I find that fascinating because the idea of arguing usually divides people right down the middle. There are, of course, you know, those followers of Jesus uh, uh, who feel the need to argue endlessly about anything and everything. And they tend to be, at least in my experience, rude, mean-spirited, much more like Jesus' opponents than like Jesus himself. And then on the other hand, we all know those kind tender-hearted souls who would do just about anything to get out of an argument. Uh, you know the type, God bless them. Uh, whenever like even a civil disagreement breaks out, they, they raise their hands and talk all gentle and they say, guys, guys, let's not argue. Is this loving? Is this loving? 
<laughs> but uh, uh, Jesus is, as we'll see, he's prepared to argue, apparently. As usual, he represents a third way that is neither passive nor hostile. So let's work through this text line by line and see what we can learn. Matthew 9, verse 1 begins with, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now, if you remember last week, something insane has just happened in the story. Jesus was approached by two sick men. He drove demons out of them. Those demons then infested a herd of nearby pigs who then rushed in a frenzy into the water and drowned. That's what happened last week. Go back and listen to it. That's, that's my advertisement, apparently. So the local farmers, they want Jesus out of town right away. He's driving their livelihood into the water and drowning it. And we can see from the opening of chapter 9 that apparently Jesus obliged them. He went right back. So verse 2 goes on. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son. Now, if you know this story, if you've been to Sunday school, if you've seen the coloring books or like the flannel graph thing, you guys remember flannel graph? Yeah, apparently Dave's enthusiastic about flannel, flannel graph. Uh, You've probably, you're probably more familiar with Mark's version of this story uh, in which the, Mark describes the paralyzed man's friend tear a hole in someone's roof and they lower him down in order to get their friend before Jesus. But Matthew, as a general rule, as a biographer, he dispenses with the details. He gets right to what Jesus is up to. And here, Matthew is most concerned with the fact that Jesus, quote, sees their faith. And he's not necessarily concerned with exactly how or why. Scholars argue that Matthew is ordinarily one to leave the colorful narrative flourishes on the cutting room floor so that he can more efficiently draw a spotlight on the authority of Jesus. So my wife, Abby, should love uh, Matthew. There are a few things in the world she loves more than efficiency. Uh, in, in some, not always, but in some ways, I'm a more laid-back person than she is. So recently, <laughs> we were driving in traffic, as one does if they live in this area, and, uh, and she's becoming frustrated with the traffic, which is understandable. And she's trying to, na- you know, navigate. I'm the one driving. She's in the passenger seat. She's trying to navigate me like a game of Frogger. You know, like, get over here and then over here and then jump this way and go back this way. And I said, look at this mess. We're not going anywhere. We just have to deal with it. It's going to be miserable. All that will do is buy us a minute. Just We have to embrace the misery and sit here. What's the big deal? And, uh, <laughs> and her actual reply was, I hate inefficient drivers. <laughs> so... <laughs> inefficient of all things. So there you go. Abby, Matthew is the efficient biographer. I thought of you when I read that this week. In any event, even without Mark's details about the roof being ripped open, Matthew notes that Jesus recognizes their faith, meaning both the paralyzed man and the friends who brought him. So remember that for later. And Jesus tells the paralyzed man, take heart, son. In Greek, it's the words tharseo and technon. And some of your Bibles translate that first word, tharseo, as take courage. The implication being that as bold a gesture as it was for these guys to bring their friend to Jesus, they must have been a bit nervous, so Jesus reassures them. Maybe he can tell that they're a bit uh, timid in front of him. And he addresses the paralyzed man with the word technon in Greek, which can be translated to mean a child living in willing dependence. And ordinarily, this was a term that was uh, a term of endearment that was reserved for actual fathers to refer to their own biological children. So this should be terribly comforting for any of us who have on one occasion or another felt timid in coming before Jesus to ask for one thing or another. And notice in the story, the first thing Jesus does is to alleviate their fear with this incredible uh, gesture of affection and gentle kindness when he says, take courage. Essentially, he says, take courage, my dear child. One scholar I read this week commented on this point by saying this, nothing at all. Wow, that's a twist. No, okay, I'll read it to you. He said this, apparently 
Nothing pleases this Lord as much as being trusted to be good. And this is huge because I honestly can't tell you how often I talk to people, present company included, who are so afraid to believe God is as good as they hope He might be. I was hanging out with a friend a while back talking about the way that we both tend to get hung up on scenes in the New Testament in which Jesus is depicted as stern or even angry or offensive, and we start to fearfully obsess, oh man, what if that's what he's really like? And then we read the overwhelming majority of passages in which Jesus is uh, depicted as being kind and gentle and compassionate and patient and loving, and we say, ah, it just seems too good to be true. The other things, I believe those, but not these. But, you know, just think of the logic. Would you prefer, as just a normal, ordinary human, would you prefer that your spouse or your child or your closest friend maintain a portrait of you that's like stern and cold or as gracious and compassionate? Of course, Jesus is thrilled to find we expect the best of him. So, after alleviating the fear of this man and his friends, Jesus does something quite surprising. Verse 2 ends with Jesus saying this, "'Take heart, son,' Your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a strange thing to say for two reasons, at least two reasons. The first being, who exactly has given Jesus permission to speak for the state of this man's sin one way or the other? Technically, Jesus doesn't specifically say, at least not yet, that he's the one forgiving the sins. He could be speaking for God. But even that would be a terribly audacious thing to do. The second reason that this is a strange thing for Jesus to say is that these friends have brought their visibly paralyzed friend to a rabbi who's now famous for performing miracles of healing, and he says to them, take courage, son, you know, drum roll, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, wait, what? You know, I'm assuming that, you know, Matthew doesn't mention the friends or the man himself reacting to this one way or the other, but we can assume they may have been a bit confused or even disappointing where they're like, oh, okay, great, I'm still paralyzed, but great, my sins are forgiven. Now, let's take a brief detour here to talk about the complicated nature of miraculous healing. Many of us, I think, tend to think of broad, complex theological topics as couched within their own neat little boxes, which is a dangerous thing to do, meaning... When many think of like a concept that we call salvation, for example, they reduce it to little more than what happens to one post-death. And this is something that the Bible never, ever does. Sure, salvation does have to do with life after death, but it has to do with so many other equally important things that are not post-mortem at all. And similarly, when we talk about miraculous healing, if we talk about it at all, we tend to make, I think, a similarly disastrous oversimplification of the idea. So the idea being usually when it gets simplified, oh, there's a sickness or an injury of some kind, God wants to heal that person, so let's just ask for healing, and then we'll deal with whatever does or does not happen. Now, Matthew has thus far in the story consistently depicted Jesus as brilliant. Jesus hasn't become suddenly dense. Um, he hasn't become oblivious to the expectations of the people in front of him. He can clearly see what they're expecting and why their friend is there. Matthew also depicts Jesus as incredibly compassionate and equally patient. Just a few stories ago, there was a whole town lining up to see Jesus, and he, and I quote, healed all the sick. Now suddenly he doesn't have time for this one guy? No, Jesus is not dense. He's not impatient. He has begun his work of healing. But in this case, it must begin with a declaration of forgiveness. Now, listen to me. That is not to say that this man's sins are what has made him paralyzed. 
Remember, every healing story that preceded this one, we just went through a whole, bunch of, a whole bunch of them, and none of them include Jesus insisting that the sick deal with their sin prior to healing. One of those stories is even about a pagan getting healed, and Jesus doesn't say anything to him about one way or the other before or after. The reality is that though there may indeed be sometimes, rare exceptions I would assume, when our physical state is affected by unaddressed sin... The Gospels paint a pretty consistent portrait of sickness having nothing to do with the specific sins of a sick person. And I honestly cannot tell you how often I encounter what I believe personally to be heinous theology in which God afflicts individuals and keeps them sick in order to teach them a lesson. Just recently, I spoke with a friend who has a family member that believes, honestly believes that God struck them with cancer just to humble them for speaking out of turn on one particular occasion. And I hear things like that all the, all the time. Ordinarily, they're not as dramatic as that one. They'll be like, oh, you know, I've been down, I've been sick, this happened to me. It's probably because I've been disobedient. And they make this connection that the Bible doesn't make. And there were probably many in Jesus' audience at the time who also connected sin with sickness. That was not an unusual theory at the time of Jesus. But interestingly, a connection between sin and sickness only shows up once in all the biographies of Jesus. It's about a man who was blind, if you know the story. And in that story, Jesus specifically dismisses the idea that sin is the cause of the physical affliction. And here's why that line of thinking, I think, is so, so dangerous. Not only is it simply untrue, but in the scriptures, Jesus himself attributes sickness to Satan. The gospel authors depict Jesus' acts of healing and miraculous work again and again as acts of spiritual warfare against Satan and against demons. So one, when one attributes sickness and suffering to God and to God's mysterious purposes, I believe they are in effect blaming God for Satan's work. And that is a very serious thing to do. That's like someone, you know, being assaulted, a rescuer comes in to save them from an attacker, and when someone says, like, oh, man, what happened to you? How'd you get all these scratches and bruises and cuts? They blame the one who rescued them and don't mention the attacker at all. It is a cruel irony that I believe must please the devil to no end. Now, why mention all of this? Because we believe the miraculous healing thing still happens. We believe it is something that, by God's Spirit, disciples of Jesus can still access today. Remember the three, three-fold goal structure of every disciple of Jesus. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and the third is what? Do what Jesus did. If we are to apprentice Jesus well, we need to understand this well. We are working up to the point where we can do what Jesus did. There's more to healing than simply identifying an ill, an ill and asking it to go away. We need to remember that God isn't the one who makes us sick, and He certainly doesn't withhold healing until every sin has been dealt with. What Jesus is doing, we believe, is honoring the Bible's holistic portrait of salvation. Being saved to Jesus isn't just about what happens after death. It's about the here and the now. It's about what Jesus called life and life to the fullest. It's about pushing back evil and sickness and suffering and even death. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this. This time? No? Nothing? Okay. That's all right, guys. You don't need it. I'll, I'll read it to you. Everyone has to put on their extra visualization tonight. Stanley Hauerwas says this. That he forgives the paralyzed man's sin does not imply that Jesus thinks his paralysis is the result of a sin or punishment for sin. 
Rather, Jesus simply acts as one ready to forgive sins as well as heal the body. Both sickness and sin are evils. Neither should be part of God's good creation. Jesus has come to restore creation. Healing the sick, exercising demons, and forgiving sins are all acts of restoration. So the idea is, yes, Jesus wants to save. Yes, Jesus wants to heal. These concepts are not uh, distinct from one another. They are beautifully intertwined. This is why at Van City, any and every time someone makes their way back into that hallway behind you during the gathering to meet someone on our prayer team and ask for prayer, everyone on that prayer team is, in theory, trained to begin first and foremost by listening. They listen to the person who's in need of the prayer, and then they listen to God before they even ask for anything. A few years ago, I went with a few pastors to a hospital room. Uh, There was a man who was there um, whose wife had actually invited us to come and pray for him. He was about to undergo a kind of surgery that I believe could have potentially cost him his ability to speak, so it's pretty serious. And he and his wife were understandably frightened by the whole thing. This was before Van City. Uh, I was with Bridgetown, the church that planted us. And they knew that we were a church with a really high value on the things of the Spirit, including asking for miraculous healing, so they wanted us to come and pray for him. Now, Three of us are around this gentleman's hospital bed. He's expecting us to come and pray that he would be healed, that the surgery would be successful, whatever. And we, before we get into any of that, we just say, hey, before we start, is it cool if we just ask God if there's anything he wants to say, and then we'll just listen and see if he says anything? And the guy says, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then we ask, and then we wait. And then, really, for the next hour... We spoke over this man what we feel like God's Spirit was saying to him, and none of it had anything to do directly, at least, with his condition or with his surgery. There was stuff that was about his past, stuff that was deep in his psyche, stuff about his marriage. And then after we had listened and talked and prayed and listened some more and we talked some more and prayed some more, then we finally got around to addressing the physical stuff, asking for healing, asking that the surgery would be successful or else unnecessary altogether. And guess what? The dude was healed. His condition was alleviated completely. His time in the hospital was shortened. It was a completely miraculous thing. The doctors were baffled, all that. Now, I don't believe Jesus was withholding that healing until we dealt with every little thing first, but I do think in this particular case, all of that was a part of this man being healed. So yes, Jesus has, in the story, begun his work of healing, but God wants to treat the whole person, not just the ailment alone. And don't get me wrong, sometimes asking for healing is remarkably simple and to the point. Sometimes it is just as simple as declaring in Jesus' name, healing over someone, they're healed, and that's it. Not every session of prayer always includes a detailed journey into someone's personal spiritual state, so don't get horrified and you're like, I'm never going back there again if that's going to take all that. Um, So sometimes it's one and sometimes the other. How do you know which case needs which thing? The answer is you ask. And then you listen for a second. There are times when what comes up first isn't even the reason that you're there in the first place, so you deal with what comes up first. Hence, a visibly paralyzed man is brought before Jesus only for Jesus to declare, take courage, son, (gasps) your sins are forgiven. And while this may come as a surprise or even a disappointment in the immediate sense to this man and his friend, Jesus has actually done something indescribably beautiful here. Here's what one scholar attempts at a description. He says, There can be little question that here we have reached the deepest point in the gospel so far. A man is being made completely right with God, not by virtue of having kept or even have promised to keep God's law or even the Sermon on the Mount. 
nor is this deepest of all healings given on the basis of a prior repentance. In none of the three accounts of this healing in the other Gospels is the healed man investigated at all. He is put right simply on the basis of the faith of his little company of friends. So the story goes on, chapter 9, verse 3. At this, Jesus' declaration of forgiveness, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. The teachers of the law here, as I said earlier, are kind of comparable to our modern-day Bible scholars. So they, of all people, would know full well there is only one entity in all of the cosmos who is capable of forgiving sins, and that is Yahweh, the Creator God, who himself puts it like this in Isaiah chapter 43. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So for those of us, uh, for those of us familiar with the gospel stories in their entirety... It's easy to picture Jesus' opponents, whether they're the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, the scribes, whatever, as sort of villainous schemers and legalistic hypocrites because we know the whole story. But this is actually the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus faces opposition in his ministry. And really, it's not completely without understandable cause. Here, in this particular story, a group of people who studied the scriptures would, of course, be shocked, even appalled, by a rabbi who imagines himself authorized to pronounce the forgiveness of sins, or worse, to forgive sins himself. So they would, of course, think, are you kidding me? Only God can do that. And this paralyzed man hasn't even gone through any of the necessary steps to have his sins forgiven. He hasn't made atonement. He hasn't been to the temple. None of that stuff. So naturally, Jesus is, they think, blaspheming. The story goes on. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Now, that translation is a bit slippery. Uh, more literally, it's that Jesus saw their thoughts, as in he probably recognized with his eyes that they were getting shifty and uncomfortable. So let's take another brief detour here just for a moment. You guys can do it. You'll be just fine. Don't read this verse and assume that Jesus was like, you know, uh, Professor Xavier in X-Men. He, Jesus isn't suddenly flexing his God powers to read minds at will. Um, as seemingly complicated and paradoxical even as it is, the church has always held that while Jesus was certainly the embodiment of the Creator God, He was also 100% human. So we believe the best way of understanding this mysterious concept is with an idea like this one. You know, when God willingly became a human in Jesus, Jesus gave up the God card. So God, for example, is omnipresent. God is everywhere at one time. Was Jesus omnipresent? No, he was spatially located. One place at a time, he has to get in a boat and girl across the You guys know the whole thing. God is omnipotent or all-powerful and invincible. Was Jesus all-powerful and invincible? No, he, he gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets weak in the story. If you know, he even dies. And though God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything, Jesus was not. He asks questions in the story. He learns. The scriptures say that he grows in wisdom, meaning he goes from less wisdom to more wisdom. He couldn't simply read minds at will. Now, if you're thinking, wait, hasn't just Jesus been doing all sorts of miraculous stuff? Didn't he heal the sick? Doesn't he walk on water? Doesn't he raise the dead even? And the answer is yes, absolutely, he does. But we believe he does all this as a human being who is empowered by God's Spirit. So this is precisely why Jesus taught his disciples that they would do the exact same types of things and even greater things. He certainly didn't mean that they would become God. He means that they can too be empowered by God's Spirit. So when Matthew writes that Jesus 
knew the thoughts of the teachers of the law doesn't mean that he's Professor X and he can just tap into their brains at will. It could be that Jesus was given insight into what he wouldn't know otherwise via God's Spirit. This happens all the time. It happens amongst ordinary down-to-earth disciples of Jesus today. I've seen it happen here in our gathering. Or honestly, it could be that Jesus just isn't dense. It could be akin to our modern-day expression like, hey, listen, I know what you guys are thinking. He just can read the room. In either event, Jesus is on to them. However, he's getting there. He's on to them, and he confronts them, which must be funny. They haven't said anything, and he says, hey, you. But he goes even further. Verse 5, he says to these guys, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and went home. So Jesus obviously ups the ante here. It is, of course, easier to say with your voice, your sins are forgiven, than it is to command a paralytic to walk because there's no visible proof necessary in claiming to forgive someone's sin. Nobody can see what happened or didn't happen. Of course, Jesus realizes that to these teachers of the law, the claim to forgive sins is a much bigger claim than to be able to heal a paralyzed man. And yet Jesus is prepared to demonstrate his authority by doing something incredible that does have immediately verifiable results. Essentially, it's like he's saying, I can forgive sins just as I can heal paralysis. Watch this. You, get up. Go home. And then the guy gets up, and he goes home. And that language is actually important. That's Matthew's way of saying that he has been restored to life as it should be. He is back in his own community, the community of God's people. He has gone home. Thus beginning the ongoing motif in the story of Jesus. The onlookers were presumably amazed by Jesus' ability to reverse paralysis, but the religious leaders would have been livid. After all, Jesus uses this miraculous feat to validate his own very bold claim to authority. The act of healing becomes the visible proof of the invisible authority that Jesus claims. And remember, in ancient Jewish thinking, the healing of the body and the healing of the soul were not as divorced as they have become in modern thought. These are basically two gestures which are fixed firmly within the same genre. For Jesus' audience, they would be two gestures of the same concept, which is salvation. This man is being saved. Yes, Jesus says, I can heal paralysis. Yes, Jesus says, I can forgive sins. I have come to save. Look at chapter 9, verse 8, the end of the story. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Again, Matthew is highlighting the dichotomy here. The people cheer while the religious leaders scowl. The people love him. The religious leaders condemn him. The people celebrate Jesus' authority. The religious leaders question it. Now, how are you guys doing? You still good? You all right? Got a few more minutes in you? Woo, another woo. Thank you. Wow, that's all right, but we're going to exhaust them at some point, right? Before we end tonight, let's zoom in on two dimensions of the story and talk about how they intersect with you and me in the here and now. See, there's a lot here that we've already unpacked in detail so far in Matthew's gospel, Jesus as a healer, Jesus having authority, that kind of thing. But there are two things here that stand out this evening, and that is sharing faith and expectation. See, in the story, there's this group of friends, and one of them is paralyzed, This group of friends hear about Jesus, who apparently can heal people, and they hatch a plan. That's what we all gather from behind the scenes there. 
And they say, dude, we've got to get you to this rabbi who everyone's saying can heal people of all sorts of stuff. So together, they believe collectively, at the very least, in the possibility of their friend being healed. And Matthew makes no mention of the exact nature of their faith. If they all had radical faith and expectation, or if some of them doubted, some of them had weak faith, some of them had strong faith. And I think that's kind of to the point. The point is that together, they had faith, whatever that means. And remember the way Matthew communicates this. He writes, when Jesus saw their faith, this is, for Matthew, what compels Jesus to act in the story. Jesus acts because he sees their faith, not just the faith of the paralyzed man, but of his friends as well. So last week, uh, I was sitting with a good friend and describing to him uh, what has been a bit of an on and off rough season in my life, life over the last year or two. And he listened to me, he listened to everything that I was saying, and he said, um, man, it sounds like you need someone to have faith for you. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing to say. But then he went on to talk about the way that our faith can become depleted like any other strength when it becomes fatigued, and how in those seasons, it's important for the community of God's people to call on one another, to call on someone less tired, to come alongside them, hoist them up, and have faith for them. And maybe you're somewhere on the road of discipleship where some of your faith in certain things has begun to run low. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you need someone to help you pray, maybe someone to help you believe that there can be breakthrough, someone to help you believe that someone can be healed, to believe in hope on your behalf, someone to hold on to the expectation that Jesus will be good. The other night I was uh, sitting with my son before he went to bed. He had been up the night before with growing pains, and he was worried about them coming back. You know, he was like, oh, what if my legs hurt? It's a miserable ordeal. For me, too, let me just tell you, because it wakes me up, it's the whole thing. Um, and he was making a plan for the night. You know, he told me, he, it wasn't a request at all, he just told me, Dada, if I need you tonight when my legs hurt, I'll call you, and you'll come in here. And I thought for a second, oh, that's funny, but then I said, yeah, heck yeah, I will. I will absolutely be here. And I was touched. You know, not long ago, it made me think of something else. I was with a friend who arrived at this scheduled hangout. It wasn't a very ceremonious thing. But he was there promptly, and I told him, man, you know what? In the ever-increasing age of flakiness, it sure is nice to have a friend with whom it never even crosses my mind that you'll forget or cancel or bail out at the last moment. I just know you'll be here if you'll say you'll be here. And this friend of mine was so touched to hear me praise something that he just took for granted. That's just what he did by default. So I think there are times when we imagine Jesus as kind of like stoic and unflinching, as if he's totally unaffected by what we do or do not think of him. And yet the story of the Gospels reveal again and again that Jesus is moved by the expectation of his goodness, just like I was with my son or just like my friend was with me. And not unlike both of those analogies, Jesus won't withhold from us if our picture of him is mistaken from time to time. That happens. But he wants us to believe the best of him. I think this is something we are often too afraid to do, which is why we need others around us, our community, our church, our friends and family, to have faith for us when our faith runs low, or to simply help us carry what can be the heavy load of faith. We have a little, but we need more. If you've ever prayed for healing before, you know uh, full well that there's an enormous difference in taking on an illness or an injury solo and taking on with a room full of people that are fired up, full of faith, ready to pray for healing. And that's not a psychological trick. Faith nurtures faith. That's why if I can help it, I always prefer to pray for healing with the second person. If I'm back there praying for someone, 
someone's like, oh, there's something with my leg or something, you know, like they want healing, I'll say, hey, hold on one second and I'll grab another person if I can't possibly. You can do it by yourself, but faith nurtures faith. Maybe there's something in your life for which you need someone else's faith. Or maybe you right now, whatever you're going through, you feel confident, you feel full of faith, and you need to share that gift with someone who has less at the moment. And don't be fooled, that can be just as scary. I remember once uh, participating in this awesome ongoing time of prayer, and people with all sorts of stuff were coming to this prayer team, and we were praying over them and prophesying over them. It was a beautiful night. God's Spirit showed up. It was really powerful. And people were being healed left and right, and God was saying all kinds of stuff that we couldn't possibly have known. It was very evident that something was happening. It was amazing. And I started to feel, because of the results and the great faith that was being generated in the room, I was overflowing with faith myself, and I was becoming predictably emboldened as a result to pray for more and more people, more and more confidence. And seeing my confidence, a more timid team member came to me and said, hey, I need some of that over here. And he pointed across the room to a person that was in a wheelchair. And I thought, oh, dang it. Because then it becomes scary. Like you have all this confidence, all this faith, and someone with less says, I need some of that over here. And you're like, oh, man, it's, it can be really hard to share it. Sharing faith can be just as scary as not having faith. So I've got to believe that these friends of the paralyzed man were more than a bit nervous about what might happen. Well, they, they were thinking, oh, man, what if we all get disappointed? What if we get in trouble? You know, we know from the other stories that they, you know, vandalize someone's home. Um, what if nothing happens? What if we do all this and we just let our friend down? But all of them together, Jesus saw their faith. 